Thanks, Aisha. Good, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Glad that you are with us. My name is Daniel, and I am one of the pastors. Uh, and we have been uh, in the past few weeks in the Old Testament book of Judges here on Sunday mornings. And if you've been with us, uh, then you've seen in this book uh, of the Old Testament, it's filled with some odd and strange stories, uh, often hard to interpret and apply to our lives. And we've been praying that God would use this book to renew us spiritually, to equip us on, on how to live in our current culture that uh, I think is somewhat reflective of the culture of Canaan where Israel is in the midst of Judges that both Canaan and our culture today operates by this mantra, do what is right in your own eye. Uh, last week we looked at Gideon. This week we're going to look at Gideon again in chapter 7. Uh, last week we looked at chapter 6. This week chapter 7. I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand, and I'm going to read chapter 7, verses 1 through 18, and then I'm going to read verse 25. And this is God's word to us this morning. Then Jerubel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any, anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Malachites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And this comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. And as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets in the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, trumpet and I, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Verse 25. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. 
They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah tells us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Uh, let's pray together. Lord God, I do ask that the Spirit of God would speak through the Word of God to our spirits, that you would meet us where we are, that our minds would be illumined, our hearts softened, and that we would leave here willing to walk in the truths that you have spoken to us this morning, that we would encounter you and our lives would be changed because you've uh, met with us. Pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can have a seat. I want to start this morning by reading a somewhat lengthy excerpt from an article written by a pastor, Brian Zond. This is what Zond writes. He says, I have a problem with the Bible. Here's my problem. I'm an ancient Egyptian. I'm a comfortable Babylonian. I'm a Roman in his villa. That's my problem. See, I'm trying to read the Bible for all it's worth, but I'm not a Hebrew slave suffering in Egypt. I'm not a conquered Judean deported, deported to Babylon. I'm not a first century Jew living under Roman occupation. I'm a citizen of a superpower. I was born among the conquerors. I live in the empire, but I want to read the Bible and think it's talking to me. This is a problem. One of the most remarkable things about the Bible is that in it we find the narrative told from the perspective of the poor, the oppressed, the enslaved, the conquered, the occupied, the defeated. This is what makes it prophetic. We know that history is written by the winners. This is true. Except in the case of the Bible, it's the opposite. This is the subversive genius of the Hebrew prophets. They wrote from a bottom-up perspective. Imagine a history of colonial America written by Cherokee Indians and African slaves. That would be a different way of telling the story, and that's what the Bible does. It's the story of Egypt told by the slaves, the story of Babylon told by the exiles, the story of Rome told by the occupied. Now imagine this, a, par a powerful charismatic figure arrives on the world scene and amasses a great following by announcing the arrival of a new arrangement of the world where those at the bottom are to be promoted and those on the top are to have their lifestyle restructured. How do people receive this? Well, I can imagine the Bangladeshi saying, when do we start? And the Americans saying, hold on now, let's not get carried away. Now think about Jesus announcing the arrival of God's kingdom with the proclamation of his counterintuitive beatitudes. When Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, how was that received? Well, it depends on who's hearing it. The poor Galilean peasant would hear it as good news, the gospel, while the Roman in his villa would hear it with deep suspicion. And that's the challenge I face in reading the Bible. I'm not the Galilean peasant. Who am I kidding? I'm the Roman in his villa, and I need to be honest about it. Now, I, Daniel, am a relatively wealthy white American male which is okay, and I don't need to feel guilty about that, but I do think it means that I have to work hard to read the Bible right. And I would say that God has to work in a more profound way in my heart and in my mind to help me understand the gospel of Christianity. For those who have apparently been on the top, those who have held the societal power, for those who have been deemed the winners, we have much to learn about the gospel from those who have been at the bottom. 
from those who have been the poor and the powerless. You know, one of the reasons we at Christ Central celebrate Black History Month is that we want to honor and celebrate the black church, those who have been oppressed in our country but who've had the strength of God to rise up and hold on to the faith. For Jesus himself was oppressed and marginalized. He was a savior who hung on a tree. And he is in solidarity with those who suffer. You see this in the classic spiritual singing, nobody knows the trouble I see. Nobody knows my sorrow. Nobody knows but Jesus. Glory, hallelujah. Jesus is in solidarity with those who suffer. This is the African-American experience in our country. It's also the experience of the persecuted church in China, martyrs in Egypt, black South Africans during apartheid, and many others around the world and throughout our history. Those who suffer, the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, those persecuted are in a better position than this Roman in his villa to understand Jesus and the Bible. They are the tutors of the Christian faith. Those who have been made low by the world, but God has made strong. Now, the story of Gideon in Judges 6 through 8, it's about weakness and strength. And Gideon helps us understand the reality of this upside-down nature of the gospel and Christianity. So you were here last week, we looked at chapter 6, and Gideon was hiding in fear. And God's presence strengthened him to enter the battle for the heart. And he tore down the idols and the altars that could not coexist with the worship of God. And Gideon is an interesting judge. He's an interesting deliverer in this book. Many call him a mighty warrior. Is he really? Is he really? You know, the name Gideon literally means hacker. I kind of like that because hacker is an ambiguous term. Hacker can be someone who does poorly or acts carelessly. Or a hacker can be someone who does something skillfully. Gideon is ambiguous. Is Gideon weak or is Gideon strong? Yes. At the end of chapter 6, God was strengthening Gideon to go into battle against the Midianites. But then we read at the beginning of chapter 7, and Gideon is being reduced to weakness again. Gideon and Israel, about 33,000 people, are lining up to go into battle to fight around 135,000 Midianites. And God says to Gideon, it's too many people. Verse 3, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 returned, 10,000 remained. In verse 4, God says, the people are still too many. And Gideon has to be thinking, come on, God. <laughs> right? They've got 135,000 people. And God says, take them down to the water. And I'm going to test them and see which ones lap the water and the ones who kneel down to drink the water. And the ones who lap the water, these are the ones you take to fight against Midian. And there are 300 lappers of water. So God says, with these 300, you shall battle Midian. Two-thirds of Gideon's army taken away. Now, I've got to make a comment here because you may have heard this story before and heard people say this, but some commentators who, I think in my opinion, have misread this passage have said that those who lapped the water were ready warriors. Right? They were the ones who kind of had their eyes on the horizon, ready to see if any enemy would attack them, that the 300 were the most ready for battle. 
I don't think that's anywhere in our text. I think the point of the 300 is not that they're strong and ready for battle. The point is that God is reducing them to weakness. This isn't the, the 300 Spartans. This isn't Gerard Butler and his 300 warriors, right? Why is God reducing them to 300? I think the key verse in our passage is verse 2. Look at verse 2. Then the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me saying, my own hand has saved me. This verse is telling us we think we can save ourselves. We think we can manage. And in our own efforts, we want to glory in our own accomplishments. That we are glory stealers, glory seekers, boasting in ourselves and this doesn't just show up when we fail. I'd say it shows up more so when we succeed. Do you know what the country code for the United States of America is? That if you're in another country and you've got to make a phone call to the United States, you have to dial a country code. That's true for any country in our world, by the way. But the country code for the United States of America is 001. It's the number one. Would you expect anything else from our country but to be number one, right? See, all of humanity is hardwired to resist God, but I would say we're more so. We grow up in a culture believing we can save ourselves, that we can do it ourselves. And yes, there are good things about the grit and the determination that our country is founded upon, but it also makes it really hard for us to understand the gospel of Christianity. See, God wants to get Gideon to a ridiculous point so that Gideon understands he cannot save himself. So what the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. F.F. Bruce paraphrased this verse. He said, my power is most fully displayed when my people are weak. God's power is only available when we admit we are weak. Now, the irony of our lives is the very thing that we want to cling to. Our strength, our ability is the very thing that hinders the power of God in our lives. And the thing that we want to get rid of, the thing that we are ashamed of, our weaknesses and our fears is the very thing that unleashes the power of God in our lives. We're glory seekers glory stealers from God. We want the glory and God wants to keep us from being conceited. So in his grace, he reveals our weakness. See, God doesn't work in spite of our weakness. He works because of our weakness. Gideon really is the picture of the Christian life. And so the first point that I want to make after this long introduction is that we are to boast in weakness. We are to boast in weakness. Paul again writes in 2 Corinthians, this time chapter 11, verse 30, if I must boast, I will boast of things that show my weakness. This is the basis of Christianity, that we cannot save ourselves, that if we think we're good enough, able enough, we fool ourselves and we miss the essence of the gospel of Jesus. I will go so far as to say that if we think we can be good enough, if we think we are able enough in our own humanity to ultimately save ourselves, we cannot be a Christian. Try as we might to save ourselves, try as we might to justify our lives, validate our existence, to feel significant, the only way to be saved is to boast in weakness. 
Nothing in my hand I bring. There is nothing in me. Boast in my weakness. I know that's a hard word for us. And I know we resist it. Israel and Gideon are truly weak. 300 about to battle 135,000. They're not feeling somewhat modest. They're not walking, oh, shucks, here we go. No, they are weak. They're not living with some sense of false weakness. Weakness is their real condition. Weakness for us does not mean that we kind of flop around at God's feet. doesn't mean that we whine a lot and complain a lot and look pale. Right? Boasting in weakness has little to do with how you feel. It's embracing the truth that you and I are weak, that we are stripped of all human resources, and that we know we cannot save ourselves and that we must lean on God alone. Salvation is from the Lord from beginning to end, completely Him and Him alone that saves us. This reality is not just the basis of being a Christian, it's also how we grow as a Christian. Gideon's afraid, and God knows it. So look with me at verse 9. It says, That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, Gideon, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pure, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. See, God knows Gideon is afraid, and God knows you're afraid. God knows I'm afraid. See, God knows you're afraid of your future. God knows you're afraid of your children's future. God knows that you're afraid that people will find out things about you that you're ashamed of. God knows you're afraid of being alone. God knows you're afraid of death. We're all weak, and we're all afraid. You know it, I know it, but most importantly, God knows it. God doesn't mock us in our fears and in our weaknesses. He meets us in our fears. In verse 9, it says, Arise, go down. Then verse 10, if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura. See, the Lord doesn't take Gideon's fear away. Gideon had to go down to the camp and face his fears. And he goes down to this outpost of armed men, and he sees, verse 12, that the Midianites and all the people of the east lying in the valley are like locusts in abundance, and they're camels without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. Gideon goes down, and he sees that they are outnumbered and outmatched. But it's in facing his fears, knowing that he is weak, God meets him. It's where God meets him. What are the things that frighten you? What are the things that scare you to death? Whatever it may be, this is your best chance to experience God and to grow in dependence on him. Heard one pastor say, you don't need to be afraid of failure. Be afraid of success. Because the worst thing that can happen to you in failure is that you depend more on God. See, in this places, those places in our lives where we're the most afraid, those places where we feel the most incompetent or terrified, God says, good, good, now I can work with you. So the way we begin as Christians and the way we grow as Christians is by depending on God. And in our fear and weaknesses, we can't look to ourselves. We have to look to God. Christian life is boasting and weakness. But we also see in Gideon not just a weak man, but we see a strong man. 
And his strength doesn't come from himself. His strength comes from God. This is my second point. God is strong in our weakness. Gideon goes down and he overhears the soldiers talking about their dream. Listen again to the dream in verse 13. I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And then this guy's friend gives the interpretation in verse 15. This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Now, essentially, the dream is this. The bread loaf of a man, Gideon, right, this softy, he's going to wipe us out. Why? Because God has given us into his hand. Gideon is still weak, but God is strong. And then God uses the words of a Midianite to reassure fearful Gideon that God is strong. You see, the Lord speaks to us through others, sometimes even our enemies, to drive out our fears and to assure us of his strength. God uses our words to encourage one another in weakness. But please hear this. The words aren't, don't worry about it. You got it. You can do it. You're strong. You're smart. You're able. The encouragement to us and from us needs to be God is strong. God's strong. You see, God is committed to reassuring us in our weakness and in our fears that he is able and strong. A good spouse tells their spouse over and over and over, I love you and I'm here for you. And they do it particularly in difficult times. A spouse should never say, I told you I was committed to you on our wedding day. You should know I love you. No. There is reassurance all the time, especially when times are difficult. Hear me, God will ask us to face our fears and to take risks. But he reassures us over and over that he's with us and that he is strong. And it's in those places that we go from weakness to strength because that's when our confidence is in God and God alone. Look at verse 16. I think this is kind of funny. Gideon comes up with a plan. All right, we've got 300 Going into battle against 135,000, we're going to break the 300 into three companies, each of 100, and we're going to arm them with swords. Nope. We're going to arm them with some trumpets. We're going to arm them with some horns, and they're going to march with their groups with empty jars, with torches and horns, and when Gideon blows his trumpet, they're to all blow their trumpet. And it's in the middle of the night. They're going up against 135,000 armed Midianites. And they blow their trumpets. Three companies of 100. Do, 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 do. <laughs> All right. What an attack plan. And Midian goes into panic. They react in fear. Verse 22 says that they set their swords against one another. They killed each other. Israel, all they do is pursue them and they're running away. Israel never raises a sword. And it's in this attack plan that God shows us that it's not by sword nor by might, but by the Spirit of the Lord that he saves. Do you believe that God saves? Do you believe that God is mighty to save? You, your family member, your friend, your co-worker, your neighbor, our city, the nation's, believe God's mighty to save. 
Did you catch the end of verse 15? Right before they attacked, right, as soon as Gideon heard the interpretation of the dream, as soon as God reassured him that God was strong and God was with him, verse 15 says Gideon worshipped. And worship leads to Gideon stepping out in faith to fight against Midian. Are you worshiping? Are you worshiping? A good reason that you may not be worshiping God is because you don't know you're weak. For when we're weak, we know God is strong, and then we will worship. And when we worship God, we will be courageous and bold, not for our glory, but for God's glory. Is Gideon weak or is Gideon strong? Yes. Did you notice where we see Gideon at the end of the battle in verse 25? He's in a wine press right, with the leaders of Midian who he's defeated. If you were here last week, do you remember where we met Gideon in chapter 6, the beginning? Hiding in a wine press. It's come full circle. Gideon was weak in a wine press in chapter 6, but now by and through and in God, he is strong in a wine press. He is both weak and strong. Gideon is the least and the weakest. He is not able nor capable. And we can never forget this truth or else we become conceited. We become glory seekers and glory stealers and overconfident. Yet God tells Gideon, I'm with you. Go fight. And Gideon is a mighty man, strong and courageous. He defeats the Midianites through 300 horn blowers. He is the picture of the gospel. For Jesus was truly the least of the least. Jesus was a Jewish carpenter from the middle of nowhere Nazareth. And he is the mighty man who saves the world. Jesus was both weak and strong because he was both human and divine. Jesus is the mightiest of men who became weak. He put on flesh. He suffered and was willing to be crucified on a Roman cross. Gideon, the one mighty man, overcomes the Midianites by a ridiculous plan of 300 horn blowers. Jesus, the one mighty man, overcomes the world by the foolishness of the cross. You see, if God had come down from heaven with horses and chariots and in great power and defeated the enemies of God, God knew we would think that that's the very path we're to walk in. But Christianity is about the weak becoming strong as we trust in the God who is strong. And the way our God defeated all of his and all of our enemies was through the cross. The cross is what saves us, and the cross is the place we must remain in order to grow. God knew the only way to convince humanity that we cannot save ourselves was to deliver in an unexpected way. A suffering servant given over to death who would rise from the grave. It is the path of Jesus, and it's our path as well. Paul writes in the New Testament again in Galatians 6, verse 14, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So let us boast in our weaknesses. Let's not despise our weaknesses, for it's in our weaknesses that God is made strong. See, this is the goal, the glory of God through dependence on God. And when we live in this posture, we can better understand the Bible. 
We can better understand the gospel. We are made worshipers of God who then are willing to go fight for the sake of God's glory. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would, that you would help us to see that our weakness is not a thing to be despised, but our weakness is the very thing that, that saves us because you were strong when we confess that we need you. And God, we all need you. Some of us are ready and willing to confess that. Others of us are not so much ready and willing to confess that. Some of us need more convincing. Lord, however you need to do it, in whatever ways you need to do it, I pray you will. I pray that you would rescue and redeem through Jesus as we confess our need of you. And would you use Christ Central Church Lord, to be worshipers of God who glory in you and you alone, who are willing to go where you call us to go, to take risks and to face our fears so that Christ and Christ alone is made much of. It's in his name we pray. Amen.